Hello, welcome to Two Sick and Naked Healing Out Loud, where we vulnerably discuss the ups and downs of healing from illness. Each episode, I interview a brave guest who has extensive experience with illness and or wellness, and hopefully we will leave you inspired to warrior on as well as highly informed about something new. Hi, sweet things. So did you know that April is Autism Awareness Month? I'm so lucky to have talked to Caddy and Marciano this week about her journey mothering Marcello, her 17-year-old, beautiful, nonverbal autistic son. We talk about the signs, the diagnosis, the treatments, and the feelings that affect the entire family. Caddy bravely discusses the emotional roller coaster the last 17 years have been and how she made it through with lots of spiritual assistance. You guys, this episode is about our powerlessness over our loved ones and total acceptance. The weekly challenge is is to pick one new thing you can do that is fun that you have never done and doing it just might change the relationship to the world around you we talk all about this at the end of the episode like the last 10 minutes we throw out all sorts of ideas for you so please follow me at Shay Jackie to find out what I do on Instagram and please tag me and tell me what you do this week please inspire me stay accountable follow me at twosickandnaked.com subscribe rate and review this podcast on iTunes share it with your friends thank you so much for the love and I will see you over there Hi everyone, your host Jackie Shea here. Today I get to speak to Katayun Marciano, writer, mother, dog lover, migraine sufferer, and sadly known for mother of a big, beautiful, nonverbal autistic boy. Hi Katayun. Hi. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. I mentioned that one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is because when I was very sick, a person that I followed and listen to on repeat was Kristen Neff, who is the researcher of um, self-compassion, but began her journey because of her um, son's autism. And now she has this Netflix, there's a Netflix uh, documentary out, uh, Horse Boy. I haven't seen it, but But this is what, this is what people are relating to. So anyway, I used to listen to her story and she talked so openly about her feelings when her son was born and how she had to transform all of those feelings into self-compassion and self-love and um, just the way she spoke so openly about her pain and her suffering during that time and how she came through it really, really helped me get through. And I've watched you, um, Mother Mother Marcello, is your son's name, for the last – it's almost six years. I know that he's 17, but I've known yeah. you for six years. And um, I see how you do it with a tremendous amount of of love and passion and compassion and strength. And I see how hard it is. And uh, so I just, I thought it would be very special mm. for everyone to hear your story. You should add in there that sometimes it's really sloppy. It's certainly not a direct path. Yeah, that is important. It is very important that it's not. You're actually one of the people who told me, trees don't grow in a straight line. You know, life is messy. Life is crazy. It's true. It's true. He's definitely, and he's definitely his own kind of tree. There's no doubt about that. Um, So he's your third child. Correct. And your youngest. When did you find out? That he so, was autistic. You know, it's funny. I think back, you know, retro, hindsight is twenty twenty. So there's a lot I can tell you if I go way back. But um, I could tell you that I officially found out that Marcella was autistic sometime. Or, uh, it was first brought to my attention sometime around 10 to 15 months. And then officially, officially sometime between 16 and 18 months. 
uh, so pretty early on, but I'll tell you that we saw it way earlier with him. And um, I'm going to dispel some of the myths around this. Some parents are, listen, it's interesting to watch parents with autistic children. Everybody has their story and they see the point of where it started or where they think it started. And mine is mine. Mine, I believe that it started in utero. I think uh, I was um, probably in my first trimester and I got sick. And I I didn't have a fever or anything like that. But I always wonder about that illness. It's oh, it's one of those little points in your brain where you revolve around. And, um, and you know, that I, I have a theory on, on actually my my mother intuition theory on autism which is that i think it's viral a lot of people talk about shots and things like that i I think it's viral i think there is a component of it where you see your child get sick so a lot of people will talk about that but i didn't have that he came out the way he is so is there no real i actually don't know this there's 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 No. no proven no no, no, that's the million dollar question. How how does it, autism come in, to be? In fact, all the research that's being done right now is pretty much aimed at figuring that that, that question out. And autism is such a, a broad spectrum. The version that Marcello is is nonverbal. Marcello has what's called severe apraxia. Um, praxis is uh, is how we ideate. It's how we make a. It's how we get a thought to then become a reality. So, for example, if I need you to hand me the cup that said, it's like you have a cup next to you and I want that cup, I have to be able to say the word cup and ask you for that cup. So to ideate, I have to have the idea. I have to send the information into my brain. Uh, and then my brain goes through sort of a roster of images of to find cup as opposed to glass, say, or I don't know, beaker. <laughs> It's got to find cup and it finds cup and then it has to place a bunch of sounds that are elusive. They don't really belong to anything. Cup, up, uh, those, who knows what those mean, but it has to put those together and then it has to send those to the motor movement and then the motor movement has to plan it and it has to send it to your mouth, your tongue, your teeth, your, um, your diaphragm has to get involved. Air has to get involved uh, so that you can get the word cup out of your mouth. And then I can get that word to you. And then you then will understand that I just was referencing the cup. And you'll be like, oh, you want the cup? Here's the cup. And then I'll have like, it's like I, I made my goal. And so then I have to store that information back in my brain. That's the that's one entire cycle process of ideation, which, by the way, in this conversation with you, I probably did 10,000 versions of that, mm-hmm. which is frightening. So for a child like mine, who has such severe apraxia, he... For him, the the it, it breaks down along the chain of command, but never in the same place twice. So he can't fix it. So one day he might be able to put the sounds together. The next day he won't be able to retrieve the word from where he stored it. So he it it's always going to be in a different place, and he can't you you you, you cannot combat it. Sorry to backtrack. You think. That it was viral and based on the illness that you had. Uh, you know what? This is this is just a big rando guess. Sure, so sure. I don't want anybody to attach to it. There is some research done by the Mind Institute on uh, viral, the viral issue. Uh, a lot of people will tell you it's shots. I'm not a proponent. I, I didn't give them the shots, so it, it's not the shots on my end. 
I mean, there it could be anything. It could be a mixture of things. It's there's such a. It's hard to say because there's such a spike in autism. Is it because we're calling things autistic that are like I I met I've met a couple of people this week who called me about their children who are autistic and their children can speak and get around and do be in a typical classroom and be a typical kid almost except that they fixate on things or they you know they um, right does the spectrum seem a little broad to you (laughs) usually so but also you know I think the brain is like outer space we we know more about outer space than we do about the brain I, there was a uh, there was an interview on Charlie Rose with the fellow who found the genome. There are two guys who found the genome. Well, there's that's a debate too. <laughs> um, <laughs> somebody will tell you that that's not true that they weren't the ones. But anyway, let's just say they found the genome. I think the guy's name is Watson, believe it or not. And he has a they were he was talking to Charlie Rose, and they were talking about uh, that they've discovered the entire genome, and you can. Um, uh, they can predict like if you're going to have breast cancer or when you're going to die. But they know nothing about the brain. Nothing. Wow. Zero. And he, it t- turns out, has a child like mine. And his child's in his 40s. And he said, you know, I think I probably got into this business because of my child, but we know nothing when it comes to my child. Nothing. Wow. And I, um, I feel the same. So the research they're doing are for the kids that are coming, not for my kid. I mean, if they find a solution here for what's happening, like if they find out one day that it was the water we were drinking or the fluoride or it, it is a virus, I, I, I actually, so my belief system is that it's viral, but it's not the virus itself, that it's the antibodies, the, the it's the antibodies that build up against the virus. And it can happen anywhere between zero and two, three in a child. So, the reason is, so in Marcello's case, it happened first trimester. That's when brain development is happening. Mm-hmm. So it's the most severe time for it to happen. And what happens is whatever that that um, those antibodies are, is they block some sort of either protein or sugar process, and it messes up the, the child's metabolism. And there's a metabolic disorder that happens. And that metabolic, are you following me on this? Yeah. That metabolic disorder then, uh, because your brain operates on how well your metabolism is working. And so oftentimes people are always referring, like especially with autistics, they're like uh, gluten-free diets, which by the way are, I, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not dissing anybody, but they're ridiculous. It doesn't mean anything. If you really want to put your child on one of those diets, you should go on a, you know, uh, on a paleo diet. That's what they call it now. Mm-hmm. But it used to be called a complex carbohydrate diet, which is where you take all uh, complex carbohydrates, anything that breaks down into a sugar out of the diet. Because maybe it's not that it's the sugar breaking down in the body. Maybe it's metabolizing somehow in the gut and that, that metabolism is then causing brain fog. This this could be true. I'm not sure about any of this. I'm making a whole lot of stuff up. We could find out in yeah. 20 years that you know, I was believing in the medicine man. I don't know. But I I know that I've tried a lot of things. I tried a raw diet, I tried a gluten-free diet, I tried a complex I put them on a paleo diet. I, so, okay, so what happens? So at between 6 and So 6, six months I saw that he was I said to my 
pediatrician at the time, I said, oh my God, he's the most content baby. He'll just lay there and not ask for anything. And my pediatrician was like, oh shit, that's, that's just bad. That's a bad, it's always a bad, you know, I see these parents with new kids who are, oh my God, my kid's crying. I'm like, you're so lucky. Your kid is crying. I mean, you don't want your kid to cry excessively, but, but the fact that your kid is having normal responses, you, you want your kid to be a pain in the ass. And um, my kid was not. My kid, at somewhere around, I, I must have been nine months, I remember. We, I was at my other children's school, and we were painting sets. And it was a really long day, like eight, nine hours. And he sat in a stroller and did not ask for one single thing. He sat there for nine hours. What child, nine-month-old child does that? I mean, that's just not normal. And I didn't see it. I had two other children, but I couldn't see it. And people would just say, oh, my God, you have such a good baby. But what I had was a child that wasn't developing. Mm. So he wasn't having responses to his environment. It was like someone had turned off his automatic pilot. So between zero and three, your brain is just learning everything. It's learning language. It's learning to walk. It's learning to talk. So 10 months, I went to the doctors to get his MMR, the shot that everyone says causes autism. Measles, mumps, rubella. Correct. Right. And the doctor said, let's not do it. Let's let's not do it. Because I said to her, you know, he's not pointing still. And she said, you know, why don't we just not do the shot? Let's just wait. I'll give it to him at five. No kid's ever gotten autism at five. And I didn't know what she was talking about. And I went home and just brushed the whole thing off. Like, oh, it's nothing. I thought she was being extreme. Did you know much about autism? I knew nothing. You knew nothing. Okay. I had a friend who who had a family member who had had a child with autism and I remember her calling me up and asking me about what I thought and I thought I said oh they like to give names to everything this was this was my response oh great that's a lot of people's responses today right so they're oh they're just giving a name to this they just want to why don't they just let the child be the child I had no clue not even a little bit and uh and this is 17 years ago it wasn't it wasn't as much of a topic so Somewhere around, it was April. He was born in February. So whatever. What does that make him? 13 months almost. I'm in a grocery store. It's April. April is Autism Awareness Month. (laughs) I didn't know. And he's not walking. I didn't know. Oh, no. He's not even sitting at this point. He's not sitting. Well, at this point, he's sitting, but he's not walking. Okay. He didn't sit until he was about a year. Wow. Okay. Um, But he's not walking. There are pictures of him at nine, ten months where he couldn't hold his head up. So, and we kept saying, oh, he's a boy, oh, he's slow. So I'm standing in a grocery, I mean, Ralph's, and I pick up Time Magazine, and it has autism on the front of it. And I, I'm waiting in line. I, of course, picked the longest line. So I'm flipping through the magazine to just, there's a checklist, and I start going down the checklist. And as I go down the checklist, one after the next, I keep checking it off. <gasps> And I just was, I literally, my groceries were on the conveyor belt. And I, I, I don't know what people thought that day. Oh my God. I literally just walked out of the store with the magazine. I just like left everything and I walked out of the store. And I was just like, I'm sorry, excuse me, I, I have to go. And I just walked out of the store and I sat outside and I call my pediatrician and I say to her, oh my God. I saw this magazine and I start telling her. She said, honey, I've been trying to tell you. I didn't even know what, I didn't, I just didn't even know what was happening. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was coming. 
I don't even know why I'm this emotional about it because I'm not this emotional about it anymore. It's been a lot of years. You get used to it. And I, you know, I, what I, a turning point in I, yeah. everything you thought was yeah. going to be. I remember you telling me at some point years ago that when you found out, you felt like you packed his bags. It's a little bit further down the line, but yeah, I, at a certain point, I remember thinking I had, I had made all these plans for this child and not just me, my, my, my husband too, at that time we had, we had sort of, it's like, I felt like the night before you go to a hospital, you pack a bag and I felt like you pack all your expectations, plans and your, your future with this kid, you know, and it's always got those things in it. Like what you're going to talk to him about, (laughs) what you're going to do with him, what his life is going to be like, what he's going to bring to your life. And I felt like we packed that bag for the hospital and that bag just sat our whole way for years, for years. I mean, we both, we could feel it. Like it's, it, it's, it wasn't physically there, but it was, you know, it was there in spirit and I f- could feel every part of our energy in there. It took a long time to open it, unpack it and just start over to, to, it took a long time. That's a process. It doesn't I mean, the happen whole overnight. Thing is a process. I imagine, right? So obviously, sure. so so. I the first guy I ever went to right around that fifteen month point period was a doctor at UCLA who was like renowned for finding the Pagunji cells, whatever that is. Renowned, known about autism, and I went to see him, and he interviewed me for an hour, and then he played with my kid for an hour, and he Marcel was. 15 months old and he walked he had Marcello sitting on the floor he had blocks and things like that Marcello was just sitting there he picked up a chair like a plastic chair and he walked around behind Marcello and he smashed the plastic chair to the ground and Marcello didn't turn didn't look didn't respond and he he did it again and then he looked at me and he said see maybe he's deaf and you are just a nervous mother and you need to stay off the internet. That's what he told me. Oh, God. This is like 2002. It really sent me down a rabbit hole. It's a really common error with children who have autism. Frequently, people think they're deaf. And I was like, oh. Right, because they don't respond to their surroundings, right? So you call their name. They don't respond. Correct. You, yeah. They, they, he didn't respond to his name for a long I can't even remember the first time he responded to his name. He didn't speak. He didn't utter any sound. He said one word at about a year. At a year he said ball. He said it once. And he never said it again. And and then he just didn't sound he didn't make noise. He didn't he didn't cry. He didn't he didn't call for us. Which is interesting because did another thing that's really associated with autism is the fits. Having fits of uh, tantrums? Well, but the tantrums don't come until later. They don't I, come until I, later. I, I will tell you. Let me just give you the beginning. That I went through all the deaf stuff. And I went to house hearing and I had them checked for deaf. And I walked out the door. They they at, they they did everything. They put the little... they First of all, they did all this stuff on him. And they said, oh, yeah, he's profoundly deaf. And then they put these... Uh, what do you call it? They They hooked him up to this machine and they put him to sleep. And they started to test his brain waves and instantly knew that he wasn't deaf. And I was like, wait a minute. And they're like, oh, no, he's not deaf at all. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do now? And they're like, well, we don't know. We just do deaf. That was the hardest moment for me. I remember being shown to the door. And I remember he was in his stroller and I was walking out the door crying. And I was like, what do I do? And they were like, sorry, see ya. And I 
I remember walking to my car with him and thinking, I don't understand. How, where am I? And it was like being dropped into mud. Like you just didn't know what to do next. And that, for me, it, it now, I think nowadays there's a clearer, kind of a clearer pathway. There's more information out there. When I got started, the information was really scant. And there was a lot of misinformation. Like the gluten-free diet was one of them. Oh my God, he just needs a gluten-free diet. I'm sorry. My child did not come out of being autistic from a gluten-free diet. Right. I was willing to like dance naked on, you know, the highest peak in, you know, in Asia. I would have done anything. I would have stood on my head if that would have, you know, changed it. And believe me, there's a million people out there telling you a million different routes and none of them really make sense. So, but what does happen is he, he lacks language. And so I did figure out really early on that it was his uh, uh, automatic pilot was turned off. So I felt like I had to manually input stuff. So I started to manually try to input language, manually try to input stuff, get him to do things. Man, it, It's impossible, by the way. I tried it. it. It didn't really work. I did a lot of things for him. I got him a lot of help. I would recommend any parent who's in this situation immediately contact their regional center. In California, we have regional centers. In other parts of the world, they I think they have other versions of this. The earlier you go to the state, the better, because they have systems in place that can help you. And then university hospitals are good too. They have the, they're all doing research, so there's always stuff happening there that can help you as well. But to go back to the story of like where that went in terms of the fits, because I I do want it it early early on the regional center sent my son what's called behavioral. Uh, support. Behavioral support is a system of working with autistic kids. There's two schools of thought. There's behavioral and floor time for people who have autistic children. Floor time is more uh, child-led and you're paying attention. to. It's more a listening. You're really listening to this child and you're really trying to engage with the child based on the terms of the, that the child is presenting. Behavioral is imposed upon the child. They come in and they basically try to change the child's behavior. It's like working with a dog. I'm going to just make it really simple. In fact, and I don't mean to be crass about this, because I've had a child who's autistic for 17 years, I, a couple of years ago, got a dog, and that dog was a biter. And people told me, you can't change that. Guess what? Because I had behavioral training, I changed the dog. Behavioral can have positive things. It does. Because it's a very uh, systematic and it's logical but it has very negative effects as well, I think. So neither is very good. But to bring this in early on, my kid wasn't even speaking. He was two. He wasn't even speaking. He wasn't interacting. They brought a behaviorist in for 40 hours a week. 40 hours a week, this kid would sit with this woman who would tell him to touch a red dot. Touch the red dot. Touch the red dot. Touch the red dot. I was like, what? what is she doing? I don't, this makes no sense at all. I'm sure that my version might have not been the appropriate version. A lot of people, again, can argue this point. Ultimately, it doesn't really come into play till later on when the child starts having more awareness and more language. So what is the so what is your take on the behavioral? Is the suggestion to, to I do still, that? I'll tell you, I still use it. I'm not a fan. I use it because I'm up against a wall. I don't have a choice. If I could change everything that I I would change everything that I did in my approach to this child. The first thing I would do is throw out every television in my house. What would you have done in 100%. retrospect? 100%. First thing everything. I would do is throw out my television sets. 
Now, there are parents who will tell you that they get to their children through their TV sets. That has not been my experience. It's certainly not a really great... What happened for my child is he became fixated on that television. That television and Disney became everything. But it didn't get him to language. I know there's a movie out about a kid who got to language through Disney. Again, he's way up the scale on the spectrum from where my kid is. So I can't speak for everybody. But I can speak for kids who have serious uh, verbal um, uh, uh, issues. I think... It, I, I would have gotten rid of all the technology, even though technology is helpful. I would have immediately gotten him an iPad with only, only Proloquo on it to go. Proloquo to go is a, uh, uh, it, it's a, it's something called PEX. PEX is a picture exchange program that they use with children. And what they do is they, like, it'll, it'll have little, um, stick figures of people and you can push those stick figures and then it, strings together sentences and talks for you. So it'll say, you'll see a little, it'll, there'll be an I want picture. So you can press that I want picture and then you can go find hamburger. I want hamburger. And then I know that the child's hungry and wants a hamburger, whatever it is. So, but also in that, in this program, they have a typing program in it. And my child Again, each child is different. This is just like uh, kids with autism are not all the same. So uh, they're like thumbprints. They're each individual. And so he he gravitated towards actually typing. He likes whole words instead of pictures. Like he responds better. Like if I ever have to ask him a question, I write out the words so he can see them because he processes it better for whatever reason. And his processing is not the same as ours. So the first thing I would do is get rid of the technology in the way the technology is. And I would introduce technology in a way that's beneficial to him early on. I was deterred from doing this over and over again. I kept saying, can we give him a way to speak that's not? And they said, people kept saying to me, oh, he's going to get to speaking the easiest way he possibly can. And I was like, I don't think you're listening to me. 17 years later, I'm still fighting this fight. Now, the next thing I would do is tell parents to watch a movie called Wretches and Jabbers. And I give you this, you can put it in your notes. Wretches and Jabbers are two autistic men in their 40s and 50s who found their way to typing on keyboards. Wow. Watch the movie. You'll see them talking to you. So, Jackie, you've had the opportunity to meet Marcello. So you've seen him in person. And if you were to look at him, do you think, I mean... And I know you're kind and an empathic person, but really, really point blank. If you were to look at him, do you think he really gets much or that he, do you think that you could have a meaningful conversation with him? Um, no. Right. No. And, and that, that, that's fair. That's a fair assessment. And I would even have that assessment. Of course, I'm his mother and I intuitively know that that's not true. There is a woman in Los Angeles. Her name is Darlene Hansen. She runs something called Wapata or Reach. She has been working with children doing something called um, uh, 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 sort of assistive typing. So people think, oh, she's doing the Ouija board. She's not. Through her, and she started with Marcel early on when he was young, when he was four or five. And then I kept getting dissuaded from using her. What she does is she starts by creating pressure under his hand, not guiding his hand to type, but creating pressure and then asking him meaningful questions and letting him answer those meaningful questions, like how things make him feel or a more, she 
is asking him to have a bigger sentence than just food, which he, the only word he says is cookie or, or water. And what you find is that he can have an entire conversation with you. And he's not the only one. If you watch that movie, Wretches and Jabbers, you see it in these men. They spent years being put on the floor with a puzzle in front of them because that's all anybody thought they could do. And now one of them actually goes and works at the state assembly. He's just like Marcello. He doesn't speak, but he's at the, the I believe it's the Vermont state assembly. So, so have you been able to have conversations with Marcello? I have. I have. My problem is, is I have a, my, my situation is a little bit complex right now because my husband and I are separated. And in that separation, uh, and again, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but Marcello has gotten to be a very big boy. And the fits that you're talking about, which I was about to get to, those fits have become a much bigger issue. And he he could literally kill me. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't be an advocate for him at all. So the decision had to be made at a certain point. Um, where was he going to live? So he's been with his father, and we're um, in the middle of moving him to a uh, residential living, which I'm not... I will tell you, this goes against every instinct I have as his mother. I have to start to be able to fight for him somewhere. And I'm the only voice who does fight for him. And that that's the other thing. I mean, I can tell you all this. this It brings out the fighter in me. And I'm going to tell you all the basic bare bone facts about what we fight for and the details like this about what we fight for. But at the end of the day, I am not a religious person. But I... I, I do believe that I my problems are physical problems and that my answers are solutions to those problems are spiritual solutions. I, I'm not telling you what kind of spiritual solutions. I'm just saying that they that means that they don't necessarily live in my brain and I don't necessarily have all the right answers. And I have to know that because uh, if I think my way down this path with him, it's it's scary. It's not what a mother wants to see her child go through. And the fit, this is all goes back to the fit. So you'd ask me that question about the fit. So let me answer it sometime around, probably. No, I'll tell you exactly when, 2006. So he was born in 2001. So he's seven years old. Marcello had his, what we call, first fit. I had had taken a job. I was working on a movie set. I was working maybe 13, 14, 15 hours a day. My husband at the time who had been going, it was a tough time for him. He's an actor and he had been not working was at home with the three children. He had a particularly difficult night with them, trying to get them bathed into bed. And one of the number one things you have to be with children at all is flexible. Mm. But with autistic children, it's very flexible. You have to always be thinking outside the box. At the time, that night, that night with my uh, son, he was in a bath. And my husband was telling the girls to go get ready for bed. And they were apparently not listening to what he said, <laughs> which is a really very funny picture. If you if you knew my kids, I'm sure they were running all over the house naked and terrorizing each other. And um, I had two daughters and uh, he I think my husband in frustration yanked my son out of the bath without giving him any notification or any notice. And up until this point, Marcello had been a silent watcher of things his first sound had come at three it was the letter s i mean it took him three years to get the letter s out of his mouth he was seven now he wasn't really talking or asking for things still he would just go along with the game plan he must have liked that bath that night he must not have been prepared to be brought out of that bath 
So when my husband pulled him out of that bath, Marcello threw himself backward on the bathroom floor, which could have cracked his skull open, and kicked my husband in the face as hard, I mean, literally kicked his jaw so hard. My husband said it was ridiculous to get kicked that hard from a seven-year-old. He said he didn't even know it was possible. My husband's reaction was to slap my son on the butt. Now my, my son was naked, wet, coming out of a bath. That left a mark on his butt. Just a big red mark, which got seen outside of our house. And by and the minute it got seen outside of the house, we had social services in our house, which when you have a child with autism like mine, you get to know social services really well. And they're not always right. Social services, I'm, again, not putting them down. There are a lot of children who need help, and they really need help. In this case, we needed help. We needed help as a family. We actually asked for it. We told them the whole story. We told them what happened. We told them we'd never experienced it before. We told them we didn't know what was happening. They chose to punish us for this. It was terrible. It was actually terrible, and it didn't help matters. But what we learned from it was that that we weren't going to get support from the system wasn't going to support us, that's for sure. But we had to start really thinking of those fits. That was the first. That was the first if you saw a Marcello fit now, you would think that was nothing. I have seen a Marcello fit. And and it is actually very surprising to me that they didn't start until they're se- until he was seven because that's really the only way I know him is is to have fits. I have seen him attack you. Yep. I have seen him hit you severe severely. I've seen face, I've seen yeah. the bruises on your body. Mm-hmm. Um and I've also seen him – I mean, I also love Marcello and know I that know. he is just the sweet – so I know that it's very, very layered, the whole thing, but he starts having these fits. And I really wanted to um, also tear into how you were feeling through this. So it's like – Oh, my God. That moment – I. it's so funny that we're talking about that moment. I don't really bring it up that often, but it, it's an important moment. That moment was crucial. It was such a turning point for us. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know this was going to happen. When you think about autism, you don't think about temper tantrums. Not just autistic children, Down syndrome children, ch- any ch- children with mental disabilities tend to is tends to happen. And the reason is because they can't communicate. When you have a two year old child, they have there's a there's a progression. I think it's called um, I think it's. Hitting, kicking, biting, biting. I can't remember what the progression is. Hitting, kicking, biting. With two-year-olds, you get this. It's a progression of how they do this. And it's because they're frustrated and they're, they can't express themselves. It's not just that they can't speak. It's that they can't express their feelings. Um, again, I'm going to segue a little bit, but my eldest child was in preschool. And she had an occasion where she bit another student. She was three. And I had to go pick her up. And we thought it had been taken care of. You know, she'd bitten someone. She'd been had to sit by herself. She'd had to find out that she'd done something that's not appropriate. All that stuff, typical preschool stuff. I pick her up. I put her in the car. A little while later, she starts crying. Now, I don't connect the crying. She's crying. She could be crying about anything. She starts crying. But she starts crying uncontrollably. And she cries for six hours, nonstop. I finally call my pediatrician. I say, what do I do? My child keeps crying. She goes, bring her in. So I bring her in. I say to her, she won't stop crying. My pediatrician says, so, okay, so what happened today? Did something happen? And I say, well, you know, she went to school, typical day. She bit someone and they, and she went, oh, I said, oh, what? 
She said, how did they handle it? They said, well, they took her outside and she had to sit by herself and they went and took care of the other kids. She said, well, she's feeling shame, but she doesn't know how to express shame. It's not a tangible. She doesn't know how to tell you that it's shame that's happening. So imagine that happening for a typical three-year-old. Now take an autistic person who can't express themselves. Mm. And they have a lifetime of not being able to express shame, hurt, fear. And then, then people just push them around. Tell them what to do every single minute of their life. Where to sit, where to eat, where to pee, where to sleep, what time to sleep, what they can watch, what they can't watch, what they can eat, what they can't eat. There's no freedom in it. And then make that person, put that person in a 200-pound, six-foot body and make them 17 with hormones. And ask them how they, ask them, how are they going to get through this? Because if I took you and I, Marcello is completely typical on the inside. He just can't get from here to there. When you ask him what he wants, it's stunning to watch this woman, Darlene Hansen, ask him questions and watch him respond by typing. It's stunning. Yeah, there's a there's an extreme level of frustration, right, that comes out and comes out in these tantrums and but it's but I really want to get back to what what are you going through as mom if so, you can from the beginning the So when that moment happened, well first of all, that was probably one of the worst moments of our lives. I felt like it was pushing us over a cliff. We are here we are in this situation. We don't spank our children, we don't hit our children. We're not and then to have the system come down that hard on us was so devastating. It was devastating. There are these periods where I go to bed. So my sleeping periods. I take some time off. It's usually like two or three weeks. And I go, I'm not doing this. I'm going to bed. And I do whatever. I watch movies. Anything to not be in reality. When Marcello was 16 months old and I found out for sure he was autistic, when I knew for sure that was what was happening. I went to bed for a month. I said, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about autism. I don't want the word. I don't want to, I don't want to know because I'm not, I can't get anything down here. I need a, I need a break. And I would go to bed and then something would happen and I would snap out of it and I would come out fighting and I would find the next choice, the next thing to do, the next person to call, the next activity, whatever it is to move this train forward. And then uh, when this happened, oh God, I thought it was just going to break us as a family. But I went back in and uh, thought, well, this is a signal. This happened and it happened unbeknownst to us. And it was, the, it, boy, we didn't, again, we didn't know where it was going. I mean, one kick to the mouth is not, as you described Marcello, Marcello hits me open-handed, full, full body, full throttle. He doesn't hold back in the face. There was a period when he was about 12, he was already about 160, 170 pounds, which is big, a mite bigger than me. He was already about 5'11". And he uh, hadn't found medication. for. I, we ended up putting him on medication, but at that time I hadn't put him on medication. And by the way, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't do medication. I wouldn't, wouldn't. I would not pick that path. I, I, I know... I feel like where we were in that, that was a turning point. My ex-husband had gotten a TV show and he was working out of state. So he was gone six, 
like for months. And so I was there alone with this boy. That's what you saw. Mm -hmm. That's when I was getting beat the most. And my arms were black and blue. Every day I would get hit in the head at least 10 times. In fact, I wonder sometimes if he's messed up my brain. But I just would keep my house in a sort of circular pattern so that I could run without having any dead ends. I would just run. I would run from him as long as I could run. And then I had one room, which was the bathroom, that I could lock myself in. And I would lock myself in there at the last minute, and I would hear him raging around the house. I was afraid he'd break the door down. And the truth is, this is the truth. I had an instance. I talk about this instance. I haven't talked about it in a long time. But at that time when he was 12 and he was beating me up every day, I was really, I was just at my wit's end. I had gone to the regional center, again, and afraid now, afraid to bring this information to the people who can help me because I'm afraid of how they're going to respond. But anyway, I would lock myself in that bathroom. And I would have conversations with, call it God, call it whatever you want. I would have that conversation with the big fat universe. And I would say, you know what, son of a bitch, you picked the wrong person for this job because I'm not the person. You got the wrong girl. I don't know. I'm not doing this right. And it's going to end badly. He's going to die or I'm going to die or it's just going to be tragic. I I don't know how to do this. Because when you get hit as much as he was hitting me, it's like being uh, battered. And there are points when I thought, I want to punch him back. I, it took all my energy to not, not respond. And I had no solution. Like, I didn't know what to do to make it stop. Uh, so so I'm in that bathroom. Yeah. i talking to this God. I think, I'm wrong. This is not going to work. And I think to myself, I ask the universe. I say, you know what? What do you want me to do? Why am I... I'm the person who has to do, what do you want me to do? Because I've tried everything. And I had at that time, I, I pulled out the stops for schools. I pulled out the stops for people helping and systems of help. And, and I remember what I usually do is have this conversation with the universe. And then I get quiet and I wait for an answer. And I waited for the answer that day. And the, and I, you know, the answer that came back to me on that particular day that I remember was you have to change. And I thought, you son of a bitch. I have already changed everything in my life. I've changed. I've changed. I was a person who had had to change for myself personally. I had made many, many changes, really big changes in my life. Um, and uh, uh, to become more aware, to become a person who lived in the world. I mean, I was like, are you kidding me? And of course, I had done lots of lifestyle changes to accommodate for Marcello, but I was like, change? I'm already changed. What the hell are you asking me to change? I don't know what else there is to do. And then I got quiet. And this is what I always do. I get quiet and I wait for answers because I do believe that there's no questions out there that haven't already gotten an answer. The answers are already in existence. And so if I wait long enough, the answer comes. So the answer that came back to me was, you know, you have to change everything, everything. At that moment, that meant to me, you know, Lay down on the floor before you open the door. Like, let him walk in and see you in a, like, like in a position that's not aggressive. Change the lights in the house. Change, take the TVs out, which, by the way, I've tried. That's a whole conversation in and of itself. But change, change everything. Change the tenor of my voice. Change the way I approach him. Change the amount of time I give him to transition between one idea and the next change change the schedule i mean there's so many things you can change 
And for me, it was like one of the most hopeful moments I ever had. Mm. And if I think back, though, at where I am now, which is standing on the brink of having to put him in a home, literally because of the fits, because of the hitting. And again, let me be absolutely clear. He doesn't hit to hit. He hits because he, he's not being understood. The part, I think what I'm, if I could go back and change anything, I would have changed our whole lives. I would have packed us up, moved us to an island somewhere where there's not all this input. Mm. I would have changed the schedule and simplified. I would have given up living the way we live. I would have given up, who cares about modern living? I would have lived in a simpler format where every day had had a schedule, but that schedule included go wading out into the water at the beach, mm. you know, uh, making food together, not technology. Not school, not any of that. If I if I could do it again, I mean, I think about it now. If I could do it now, that's what I would do. And how did you take care of yourself during that time? Like you talk about wading out into the water and cooking food together, and that sounds like it's for the family. And I think this is something that's really big, especially when women become mothers. The, the woman gets left out of the picture often and it's not so much about how you're taking care of yourself and supporting yourself through this 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 terrible circumstance right and beautiful I mean it's your son you love it it's beautiful and terrible right so how were you giving yourself that support I do believe that it's like a perfect recipe for martyrdom mm-hmm. and it's so you know, it's funny. I write. I wrote in that bio that I'm the mother of this autistic child. I, I I think about that a lot lately. Like I have become known as the mother of an autistic boy, but that's not who I am. It's not who I am, and it's not who he is. He's just a person, and I'm a person, and I happen to be his mother. And I can change the dialogue, and when I change the dialogue, the relationship changes. It leaves. It makes a broader highway. It means. I can look at him in a bigger, broader way. Mm -hmm. That's first, because that takes me off the path of martyrdom. It doesn't allow me to use this as my excuse for self-pity or that this is even a big issue or that it's even hard. That's the first thing. I have to change my perspective and my relationship to the world around me. That First and foremost, I can't do anything without that because otherwise I'm just coming from that stuck place of, oh, woe is me. Let me tell you my sad story of woe. Let me tell you how hard it is and how it's always going to be this hard. Then we go nowhere. So if I can start with, wait a minute, it's actually got a lot of great and it's not woeful. There are some parts that are sad and scary, but most often they're really beautiful. And then, yes, there's basic care and basic moods. One of those basic things that happened was, so right after that period of Marcello hitting me, my husband uh, uh, decided, my husband made some different choices than to stay married. At the time, I had a daughter who was um, smaller physically than Marcello and just starting high school. And it, for me, it was like Sophie's choice. It was that Sophie's choice moment. I had to choose a child. And I had kind of it's funny, I'd been thinking about that for years. For years, I had kept thinking in my head, at some point, I'm going to have to make a decision about which kid goes and which kid stays. Because I thought I was going to have to send one of them away, like send her to prep school or something, somewhere away. He was big and dangerous. And it was becoming impossible for us to live as a unit. And 
in that moment of breaking up, I had to decide on which kid I was going to take. She was my middle child. She had always been short, shortchanged. She had spent her lifetime being shortchanged. Her sister was a big, big experience in and of herself. And now she had this brother who took up everybody's energy. So she was left in the middle, and they were very close in age. She was about 18 months older than Marcello. So I had to make this decision. I had to make it fast, and I chose her. And I thought, I have to give her, I can go back to him, but I have to give her what I can give her right now. I'm going to, I just want to go backwards just for a minute here. This point about picking her. Oh God, I can barely talk about this. When Marcel was really little, when he was still about two, we did a whole series of scans on him. We went to the neurologist at UCLA. And then they did, they wanted to check him, make sure he didn't have seizure disorder. So they did something called telemetry and they put, they put things all over his head and they, they watch him overnight. And the next morning I was at the hospital and they, they're teaching hospital. So all the neuro, the neurologist comes in with all these students and they're talking neurology. No one's speaking English. (laughs) I have no clue what they're talking about. And, uh, as they start to waft out of the room, the main neurologist stops and comes back and sits on the bed with me. And he, he's been overseeing the whole thing. And he says, he's really my doctor. And he says, now that they've got, gotten their schooling out of the way, let me explain to you what's really going on. And then he speaks English to me. And he explained Marcello's circumstances. And he said, come to our office. So my... My husband and I at the time went to meet him in his office. He had a typical, you know, bed for a patient to lay on with paper on it. You know how they put the paper on it. Mm-hmm. And then he had chairs in the room, but the chairs were for little kids, like little tiny chairs. So my husband and I were sitting in those little tiny chairs. I just remember how small it made me feel. And um, he said to us, we came in and he looked at the scans and he looked at all the paperwork and He spent about 10 minutes looking at it, and then he looked at us and he said, listen, there's not much I can tell you about what I'm looking at here because we know nothing about the brain. Mm. But there's some stuff I can tell you about you. At which point he walked over and he got a pen and, you know, where the paper is on the bed, he started drawing on that paper and he drew a graph. You know how a graph has a line, two lines, and then he draws this the base for a graph, and then he draws sort of an arcing line, like a line that starts at the point where the two, mm-hmm. and it arcs up. And then it levels off, and it just sort of stays one level, and it goes off into the distance, paralleling the bottom line. He says, see that? He says, that's your son's level of, of ability. That's it. I'm not saying what it is. I'm just saying that's that it is a level. And that he has a level, like every child has a level. Let's just say this is his. Then he draws another graph line, mirroring the one that was my son's, but always being just below it. And he says, this is you, trying to get him past that line. Trying to, you're going to double your efforts. You're going to do, you're going to, you're going to pull out all the stops. And in doing that, you're going to ignore the rest of your family. You're going to ignore your other children. You're going to ignore your marriage. 
And what's going to happen is you're going to ultimately never get him past that line of capacity. You're never going to get him past it because capacity is capacity is capacity. And instead, you're going to break down your family unit. And then he said, you and he looked at us and he pointed at us and said, you guys are your the poster children for divorce. And at the time, we were so happily married. I was like, what? What are you saying? And he said, listen, it's a very high percentage of divorce in the world anyway, but people with children with disabilities mostly end up divorced. I'm telling you this now on the front end because you have an opportunity. If you keep, if you think about your unit, you think about the whole, you'll do better for the individual. I tell you this because in that moment, years later, where I had to make a choice between my children, I had to pick my daughter because I had to think of the whole because I would have picked my son and then she would have been left, you know, in the wind. And I made the right choice. And I spent four years getting her from broken, which she was because of the experience with her brother, to college, to okay, to okay. You know, it's a long, it's going to be a path for her too. It affects my children just as much as it affects us. And then I went back to pick up my son in August of this last year. And I brought him home and he went right back to hitting me as if he never stopped. And then my family and the lawyers, my lawyers who represent him, stepped in and said, you gotta, you, you've got to stop. You can't take care of him. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the path I ended up on. But again, a lot of this has to do with it's. I have to think of things on bigger scales and bigger pictures sometimes, bigger than what I understand. Would I wish it were different? I do. Mm-hmm. Do I've done all sorts of things. I've had people like Roland, the drum company, came in and gave him a set of drums. I have tried to, he loves them. I've tried to segue him off those tr- television sets and onto the drums. Could I have given him drums from day one and not a television set? Maybe would it have made a difference? I think so. Could I have given him something different? Maybe. Do you forgive yourself for these moments that you wish you had done it differently? Do you have compassion for how you did it? And do you do you forgive yourself really and accept the, the choices that you made because who know who who knew how to handle it in that moment this is an interesting it's not just about forgiveness it's about knowing i'm not god everybody has their experience of life including my son and i am not the bottom line and it would be pretty arrogant of me to think that i was yes because a lot of what you're talking about is just the inability to change what is right the For inability sure. to change another person Um, even if they're your child, which I think is something that a lot of parents struggle with. Like they're my child. I I do have the ability to fix them, heal them, change them, make them different. Very long, a long time ago when Marcella was first born, somebody pulled me aside and said to me, look, people get typical children and they're great. And that you think they've got it better than you. And that child gets to 20 and has an overdose of heroin. You don't know what your path is. You don't know who your children are. They're all, it's all hard. It's, it's all equal out there. Marcello is not more difficult or less difficult, but it's, I, yes, 
to answer your question, yes, I absolutely forgive myself on that level. I always wish I could have done more, always. And I always wish I could do more. And I always try to, to carry it forward because I can't go back. But having said that, it's better for him that I'm healthy and happy and able because I cannot extend care to him if I'm not. God, and this is something that I've told my mother for years and years and years because there were years and years where she was not happy. Um, And I would always say, it makes a huge difference in my life when you are happy and healthy and doing your thing and doing your best. It does nothing for me when you suffer and don't forgive yourself and beat yourself up for choices you made that affected me. It does nothing for me but hurt me more. And um, that's why I love And Now we'll, we'll take a quick break for the weekly challenge. It's coming at the end of the episode, but this is it. Welcome to our weekly challenge segment where we arm you with new tools each week to kick some self-care butt. As you explore all of these new options presented weekly, my hope is that you will come to collect a number of quick ways to take care of yourself inside and out. You will essentially have your very own and very handy self-care toolkit. Some of the challenges may not work for you and some will seem perfectly tailored to you. We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness. Keep in mind that the goal is always progress, not perfection. The only rule is that you are never allowed to beat yourself up. Keep me posted on your progress. Stay accountable. It helps. Okay, let's hit this week's challenge. So this week's challenge is to do something new that is fun for yourself, right? Right, Um, right. Do you want me to talk about it? Yeah, you recently so, took up rowing right. in Los I, Angeles. Here's what I here's how this happened for me. I actually met with a couple of my friends. Who, I I I am in certain. I'm in a little bit of recovery, as you know. So, uh, I was addressing a piece of my own recovery, and I went and sat down with a gentleman and a lady who were uh, helping me and talked to me for like an I don't know ninety minute period of time about how I wanted to change my relationship to my life, to my world. And one of their suggestions to me was to to write down 25 things I would do for fun. And I was floored. First of all, who can come up with 25? I mean, try it. Just try. Try writing down 25 things you do for fun. It. I could not believe how hard it was. And then do one once a week. And so I, uh, my first week out, I joined the Los Angeles Rowing team. <laughs> it's something I've never done. I've never been in a, I've never, I have no connection to it whatsoever. I just began and it hits, it's, you know, what's beautiful. I mean, I didn't even know what I was getting into, but I get in this boat. It's a sweep rowing is what they call it. The oars are connected to the boat and there's eight people rowing and you're rowing backwards. So you can't see where you're going. And there's a person called a coxswain who sits in the very front of the boat and is watching where you're going and is giving you directions. And you have to be able to follow their directions. And your job when you're in the boat is to only look at the person in front of you. You're not supposed to be looking outside the boat. In fact, they say all the time, keep your head in the boat. And it's an incredible thing because everything we just talked about here is about this notion of what can I really control. And when I sit in that boat, it's not my job 
to, to call the directions. And it's not my job to do everybody else's row for them or tell them how to row or try to overcompensate for where they're not rowing right. I just do my part. I just do my part of the row. And that moves the boat in the direction it's supposed to go in. And it's the most beautiful thing I've ever done. I mean, it's incredible. It just lets me let go. And so for me to have joined this rowing team is, I don't know, it's 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 definitely a God shot for sure. But yes, once it. a week. Did you do anything else? Have or, I, done, have yeah, I picked have you, other have, things? Yeah. Yes. So what are the other ones I've done? That's been, that's the biggest one I've done as of yet. But um, I have this plan to learn how to play guitar. That's my next one and sing. So <gasps> they might be two separate things, which is, by the way, that's like a huge leap for me. But would that, be for me too. That, Those are big that's, ones. That that's one of the ones I have to do. But I mean, I've done is smaller. There, things. Was there anything small? Yeah, that's what I wanted what? to know. Is there anything oh, yeah. small? Small, lots of smaller things. One of the ones that I picked to do was start to take my dog, who is the love of my life, my little dog. I take my little dog to the dog park every afternoon where there's lots and lots of people and there it's a very social gathering and I felt you know it's it's hard to walk into a social gathering of people you don't know so I had always stayed away from it and knew about it but I'd stayed away from years and I made a decision to consciously choose to go every afternoon at five o'clock take my dog to the social gathering and it's really it's been great for the dog and great for me and great for my spirit so every time I pick one of these things to do there's another one that I want to do too, which is, it's called stranger dinner, where you go to dinner with like eight strangers. Oh. It's a real thing. <laughs> I love also the idea of doing something fun. And I think it's, and I think that's fighting martyrdom too. You know, doing something, giving, you know, you have to create the world that you live in, right? And, For sure. And what a better way to create it than by choosing to do fun things every week, right? Like there's... What a great opportunity. So I love this. And a lot of people are sick or not feeling well that are listening to this. And I will tell you that when I could not get out of bed, I found ways to have fun. And some of those things were like adult coloring books. And some of them were watching Disney cartoons. And, and then I picked up my camera and I started taking pictures every day from my fucking bed. You know? Oh, yes. I followed your pictures. I took a picture every day for 365 days and it changed my life because it gave me something to focus on that wasn't, oh my God, I'm bedridden. You know, there are many ways to have fun. You can do a puzzle. I mean, you can sit outside in the sun. You can find something. But I love this idea and I have no idea what I'm going to choose. I'm going to try to make a list of 25 you, things. You know what? It's funny. I was going to see if I could pull my list up. Oh, yeah. Which is such a crazy list so that maybe I can, it'll take one second for it to load. But here, here's some of the things that I joined the Los Angeles Rowing Club. Um, uh, go to a play with someone, which I actually did. Go to a museum with someone. Real simple things like that. Um, I was in New York, so I put in mini golf in Red Hook. Ah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um uh, ceramics class yes. and there's a really good one in the valley that's quite it, it's quite affordable oh and so then people started giving me ideas so like for example there's this place third street dance studio on tuesdays and thursdays they teach you salsa like i'm so far from doing something like that, but you know what i'll try it um uh i told you about the stranger i mean it's really hard to do you can try um i also started doing 
a, a form a form of female martial arts mm. with um with a friend of mine on, on really early in the morning. So I do that as well. So it's making me have to do a lot of yeah, things. Yeah, new. Giving yourself a new life experience. But I also started taking photographs. I started it's taking so photographs helpful. of other people. <laughs> it was a little creeper of me, but but I started, Takes you out of your head. It does, and it made me get to see the world in a different way because I was in New York for, uh, I don't know, five weeks or whatever, and I started taking pictures of people sleeping in subways. I have a whole series of people, Instagram series of people sleeping in subways, but it was fascinating to watch life everywhere around me and how it operates and how it affects me and what are my choices in that. And it definitely, again, it changes your perspective. It changes your engagement with that life. And it changes when you do something new, like you're talking about, like you just pick up your camera and start shooting out the window. You, you shift the world, your world, just enough, like a kaleidoscope, so that something new can come in, like a new idea, a new form, a new, and and change is inevitable. But man, when you instigate it by taking an opportunity, like doing mm. something different, it really it shifts everything. Mm. I love it. Other ideas I'm thinking too for people that are like bed bound or like. Um, Write short stories, you know, have no, have no attachment. You do it for a living, but it's like, have no attachment to how it comes out to, you know, know, write a children's book. I forgot about that. I did a year, especially with Marcello, I did a year where I wrote one piece of, because I couldn't focus. I wrote one piece of poetry a day for 365 days. I remember, was it, was it recent on Facebook? 2015, I did it. Oh, I remember. And they were incredible. I, I, you know, I couldn't write. I was overwhelmed by what was happening. And so instead of beating myself up, I decided to just shift my writing into something different and try, try doing, and listen, I'm not, I I don't, that's not what I do for living, write poetry. I never took a poetry class. I'm not, I don't, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a quote unquote poet. So I know people out there get scared of trying something, but just listen, I do believe that everybody has a voice and it's just a matter of finding your way there. And if you, what happens when you do this one thing for 365 days is whether you know it or not, it creates a certain kind of discipline. And discipline sounds like a really negative word, but it's really positive. What discipline does is it creates, um, it's like a muscle. It's like it builds a muscle you don't even know you have. And so what happens is you come out on the other end and suddenly you realize that you're much broader knowing and much more capable of doing something than you thought you were. Mm. And things come out of it that you, you couldn't possibly have pre- determine that's the thing i think people go into like writing exercises thinking they have to predetermine what it's going to be that's not what it is keep it really simple like even short stories are a little bit hard i would recommend give yourself like an idea a small idea like uh any there are some books out there that can help you do this too or websites i'm pretty sure at this point but they'll give you like a line like a simple line like uh write about being stuck inside something They're not telling you how that is. You could write about being stuck inside an elevator. You could write about being stuck inside a womb. Mm -hmm. You know, you could write about being stuck inside your head, you know, so you have, it'll give your brain a chance to really exercise. So I agree. I think writing is a really, really painting, 
drawing. Yeah, anything. You can right. do so much from bed and from home, home, more than you think. Especially when you have autistic children, too. A lot of times you're not mobile. You can't. One of the problems, that, again, when you talk about Marcello and his temper tantrums, we can't really go anywhere with him. At mm. this point, it's gotten to the point where he goes to school and he goes to home and that's it. He mm. will not leave for any other reason. And so you're like his prisoner. And so a lot of parents who have kids in that, those versions of kids, if they don't have any help are really, they might feel like they're really bound by that. Mm. So just like you're saying, you have to be able to do some stuff from home. And, uh, and I think the internet gives us a big wide variety too, ways to reach out, ways to write a blog, ways to, you know, there are things you can do to really um, access the world when you're stuck inside. Absolutely. I am obsessed. I love this weekly challenge so much. And I have loved talking to you so much. I'd love to wrap up with um, three suggestions, three suggestions to parents who are just beginning this this oh, road or three words. Okay. Or three. Well, the most important suggestion I tell you is um, – be, be kind to yourself through it, as you were saying. Really, really let yourself off the hook for thinking you've got this or you don't got this. Um, secondly, I would say it, it's just another kid. Listen to them like another kid. Really listen to them because they're asking you to listen in a way you don't know, never have before. It's a new way of listening. And uh, if you do, like what would it be like uh, instead of trying to just get your kid to do X, Y, and Z, just lying on the floor with them while they play and just listening to any sound that they make, not interfering. Or as I said, one of my favorite things for, to do with kids is to to give yourself a week where every day for 20 minutes, you let the kid make all the choices. I mean, all the choices. If they want you to put a crown on your head, you put a crown on your head. If they want you to, you know, uh, dance around the house, turn on the music loud, you turn it on. You do whatever the suggestion is that they do. And then the third thing I would say to parents who are autistic children is find other parents who've been through it and find people who've really, and who've met the challenge and, um, and talk to them and don't be afraid to reach out. I talked to lot. I lo I talked to somebody yesterday. I don't know. I, people call me all the time. I my phone lines are always open to people who need help. And you can and people can reach out to you if they hear you uh, on absolutely. here, right? Absolutely, they can. Reach you out can to me. find Catayuna Cats Right. I will link to it. It's K A T S W R I T E on Instagram, and I will link to your Facebook. And if you need to get in touch with Catayuna, you can always write to me at um, find my info at twosickandnaked.com and um, also follow me at Shay Jackie on Instagram. And uh, I'm probably better responding to Instagram. Oh, these good to days know. then. Facebook isn't always as accessible. Good to know. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for all of that information and for your vulnerability and your, and your love. So, so appreciated. Um, thanks, guys, for listening. Subscribe, rate, and review. And don't forget to do the weekly challenge, which I'm so excited about. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.